We need you to do the sound check. Because can't nobody hear what you need to hear. Some people might not want to have that bass. I want it the way I wrote it. I mean like the audience hears it. So whatever the record's doing, that's how I want it to sound. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 46 this time, which is Erica's selection, so let's find out what she has chosen. I picked Michael Jackson's This Is It from 2009 directed by Kenny Ortega, who was also the director of the stage show, featuring Michael Jackson and all of the collaborators and performers that were a part of what would have been This Is It. This Is It was a planned residency show of 50 concerts at the O2 Arena in London. Those shows were scheduled to run from July 2009 through March 2010, and Michael Jackson died less than three weeks before the first show was to have premiered. This hybrid of a documentary and a concert film was put together from over 100 hours of footage that was of the preparations and rehearsals for the shows. Now, I did not realize that the intention of the show was for it to be a residency. I thought this was a preparation for them to mount a 50-show tour. It was specifically designed to be at this amazing, colossal O2 arena. It was planned for that. There was so much advanced love and excitement for the show. For example, 190,000 tickets were sold in less than two hours. (laughs) Two million people tried to buy pre-sale tickets in 18 hours. (laughs) So they were overwhelmed by the fact that Obviously, the world wants to see this, and I do think that they were planning to take the show on the road after that O2 residency. They were talking about taking it to different countries, and I'm sure could have sold out again and again. It had been at least a decade since his previous tour, right? His last tour was the History World Tour in 1997. I believe he had planned a tour roughly around uh, 9-11, like a lot of major artists. Mm. He canceled it. And I think part of the impetus for this show was that he was still young enough to be able to do it, and his children were old enough to be able to appreciate what he did. Those were his words. When you mentioned you wanted to do this one, it struck me as kind of an odd choice for the show. And maybe our listeners are reacting that way as well. This one is quite different from anything we've done so far, even different from other music documentaries that we could have potentially chosen. Definitely. And this gives me the opportunity to change up our format just a a bit for this episode. I wanted to first talk about why I chose it, because this is potentially a polarizing Subject. Okay, instead of saving that for the end, address it a little bit now? Yes, I wanted you to know what was on my mind. Okay. And also, the format's going to be a bit different. I'm not going to get into such detail with plot because there isn't one, and also because of the unique way this film was put together, it doesn't lend itself to going blow by blow or beat by beat. 
This one has been on my mind for a while, and it's actually been on my list since day one, since we first started to think about individually what we might want to choose. It gives us the opportunity to talk about the nature of the art versus the artist. There have been several things that have happened recently that brought this to the forefront of my mind. Okay. One of those things is the recent Dave Chappelle Netflix special. He has an extended bit about Bill Cosby. Oh, okay. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because you haven't seen it yet. Right. So I want you to actually watch it and experience it. But it's a similar character. How do you deal with a legacy, both good and bad? I'm also a huge Michael Jackson fan. You know that. Mm -hmm. I've been listening to a lot of the Jackson 5 recently. I mean, really, honestly, if I think about it, I probably listen to Michael Jackson once a day for 35 years, maybe, that continuously. Often. If you if you take out the times I haven't, yeah, it probably averages out to about that much. But recently, it's been a lot of Jackson 5. And so I've been looking at these videos from mid to late period Jackson 5, and it was a pivotal transitional time for him. And I look at the young man in those videos who seems to be so beautiful and at ease, but knowing what we know now, he can't have been. So does documentary by its very nature give us the opportunity to try to understand a person? Those are the things that were swirling in my mind. I'm going to tell you right away, in this case, absolutely not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, for certain, I don't very specific, yeah. for certain very specific reasons, not the least of which being in the contract for the release of the film, it was mandated that nothing portraying him in a negative light could be included. Absolutely. So therefore, not exactly the most balanced. And I had read as well that... This footage was never intended to be made public. It was purely to go back and look for rehearsal processes, to use as a note-taking medium, also for Michael Jackson's personal use. And I really, I questioned that because I thought, you can't have invested that much time and effort in it and not think, well, at some point we're going to repackage this, we're going to sell it with the O2 shows, and somebody's going to want to see it. But now reading about why some fans were against it, why family members were also against it, knowing that he was such a perfectionist on those grounds, he didn't want anyone to see him not being at 100% at all times. That part is obvious when you watch this. That part of the man you definitely see. And we'll get into more of that. That is a great opportunity to just jump right in at the beginning here and talk about it since I was immediately struck by what is being portrayed versus what I think the intended use of it was. I don't think it was for public consumption. It begins with a lot of highly emotional testimonials from the group of dancers who have just been selected to be part of the touring company. They are excited beyond belief, and it makes sense. These are kids who have grown up listening to this music. It is all they have ever dreamed of, and now they have been chosen as the principal dancers for what may be the biggest pop music tour ever mounted. They're working with their idol, who is practically a deity to them when you listen to how they talk about him. Now I say that's the first thing. The first thing is a crawl that mentions exactly what you said. 
that tells us this footage was intended for his own use, his own private library. And so it's such an odd feeling to be watching this, thinking about him at home asking to see this footage, which is basically nothing but these kids singing his praises. What was someone trying to achieve by saving this for him specifically to watch by himself later? It's an odd note to start on for me. And there's going to be a lot of this, actually, because I am coming to this as a complete outsider. I liked his music when I was a kid. We watched tons of Soul Train, big Jackson 5 fan, my whole family. And I was with it up until Thriller, which was when I was 12. And after that, I sort of left it behind. I did not consume anything he did, basically, after 1982. So, while I was acting out parts of Thriller and PYT in my basement, you were not. (laughs) It is safe to say that is true. The next records I probably bought, that was essentially when I pivoted away from the radio as much as I could. And using R.E.M.'s Chronic Town as a jumping off point, I was starting to explore more and more off the beaten path music. Stuff way left of the dial. And the modern counterpoint to that is I probably cried... (laughs) 15 times during this movie. Just when we watched it this week. Yeah, and I've seen it several times before that. I believe everything everyone says. You mean the dancers? And everyone else after that, too. So am I just gullible? Well, since we're not going to go through chronology, since there's not a lot of that to delve into, I have a ton of questions to ask you about this sort of thing. I've been thinking about this conversation that we were going to have for a week now and about elements of fandom, why people hold certain media to certain standards but not others. How much of that do you want to get into now, or do you want to do a little bit more about the movie first? Let's talk a little bit more about the movie first and then get into those questions as they come up, I think. Okay. To give you a little bit more background, the way this is put together, another reason it speaks to me, it's culled from rehearsal footage over a roughly two-month period of time. They were mounting the rehearsal part of the show at the Staples Center in LA. And generally, the way the film works is that we take a specific part of the rehearsal process or a song and we go through that chunk and then we move on to the next piece. And I love the way they were able to put together footage from different parts of the rehearsal process of the same concept or song or movement, and we can watch those things often side by side. I think that's really fascinating to watch how those things evolve, having been part of a rehearsal process many times before. Mm -hmm. The fascinating thing to me about starting to see these things take shape immediately following these testimonials the dancers were given it really impressed upon me how much this was going to change all of their lives nothing for any of them was ever going to be the same after this i also really believe having watched this several times having watched all of the special features multiple times as well that really fill in a lot more details for example on the costuming on the dancer selection on each individual member of the crew and his band talking about what he meant to them. I think this was going to be the greatest show of its kind. And I'm really sorry that I missed it. And I think for a lot of people going into this, they might be thinking, 
this is my opportunity to see this show. Well, yes and no. What most people probably don't realize, you and I both know this, is that when you're in a rehearsal process like this, you never give 100%. It's just not possible. You've got to save your voice. You've got to save your body over the course of this grueling process. So we're actually watching him refine and test and hold back. But you think about those glimpses that you see of what is possible. And I appreciate that behind the scenes aspect. That did immediately make me wonder who this movie was for. Ultimately, once I get to the end, I realize it is definitely for the fans, but do you think a large percentage of them were disappointed because they thought, this is my opportunity to see the show that was taken away from me? I'm going to say again, yes and no. I think there was a huge faction. People actually boycotted this because they were trying to protect his image and didn't want to see something less than who they thought he was. But based on the gross, the ticket sales, it made four times over its budget. At least at the time, I think this is still the case. It became the highest grossing concert film of all time worldwide. That was the other thing that I was going to mention when I was wondering, who is this for? Because in addition to being for the fans, it so definitely was for whoever it was that was going to profit from it. Someone, I don't know necessarily Kenny Ortega, but someone within the parent company, it might as well have been a Tex Avery cartoon with dollar sign eyeballs. Right. That's another huge criticism against it by some fans is that it was a money grab. Again, I just thought, oh, I'm so lucky to be able to have this record, pun intended, I guess, as well. But to have this document, this glimpse that I otherwise never would have had a chance to see. So can something exist on both levels? I think it can. And not just both levels, any level. Once something is released, once a piece of art is put out for consumption, then it becomes some of the consumer's property and you bring whatever you carry within you to it. So for someone like me, it's going to be a vastly different experience than to someone like you. So I consider myself a fan and I still question, what would other fans see in this? It calls to me because I love process so much. Mm -hmm. I wanna know, I wanna try to understand, even if ultimately there is no illumination, but what does the person who is maybe going to buy a ticket to the show. What do they get out of this? I'm not sure exactly. Maybe it's just any opportunity to somehow be closer to their idol. I do want to stress though that even though he is holding back, I think he is still in great shape. I think his voice sounded great. I think he was moving incredibly well. It's amazing to think of him as a 50-year-old man, which is what he was, thinking about that body and his voice and how limber he looks, how fluid he looks a lot of the time. He looked frail to me in sections. So again, I have the beholder, I guess. I am not looking at this at all through any sort of rose-colored lens. In fact, I might be at the opposite end of the spectrum looking for flaws, looking for telltale signs of his degradation somehow. They weren't necessarily there. There were just a couple of sequences that I thought Mm, he is showing the wear and tear of this many years on the road and being a 50-year-old man. And really continuous performing since practically infancy. Mm. The big difference now is that when he finishes these pieces, 
it's to the collapse of a dozen people rather than millions. Should we have some sort of bell or buzzer or a signal for me for every instance of, I don't get it, <laughs> that we're going to come across? <laughs> Would you just be holding your hand on it the, for no. the next however long our no. discussion takes? Because I understand the excitement of this very small, focused group of people about getting to see him rehearse these things. It's other things that come later that are, like I said, antithetical. When you mention being excited about a 50-year-old man going back on the road, playing these songs that you love, my analog to that is someone like David Yao and being excited about the Jesus lizard going back on the road. And instead of holograms and cherry pickers uh, and 3d 3d Excuse me. well i'm getting to the 3d part of the <laughs> jesus lizard i cannot even imagine what would be coming out into my face right you do not turn your back on that stage not because you don't want to miss anything but because you might unknowingly have david yow's testicles resting on your head it's if you are true. not paying attention very true so definitely 3d definitely a sensory experience but these things are worlds apart to me an instance in particular that I'm thinking of in this is just the infuriating to me calculatedness of hold for applause. That makes me want to fight. <laughs> that makes me want to throw up the notion of the Minutemen or Fugazi in rehearsal saying, okay, right here we wait for two minutes. I cannot for the life of me imagine doing it this way. So much so that it makes me angry. Okay. Simmer down now. Okay. And speaking of simmering, that is a term <laughs> that is used along with sizzling. This idea sure. that a moment has to play itself out. Right. That the audience knows what they want and they're going to lose their damn minds and he's got to allow that to happen. Otherwise, you're just playing through that stuff that nobody can hear. Something I'm sure that Henry had to tell Black Flag tons of times. Let it simmer. Let it sizzle. I totally agree. It's a different way of doing things. However, <laughs> it's born of experience. True. It is realistic and logical to this thing that he has created. And then if we want to go back very far, that was created around him and in spite of him. Oh, and it's not like... That he was shoved into. Right. And he did not invent this by any means. This goes back... As far as entertainment goes back, it's just that this entertainment and my entertainment, those paths diverged a long time ago. The thing that makes me want to fight is the idea that Michael's coming today. Mm -hmm. Anytime something like that That's is said, yes, yeah. or is that okay, Michael? Mm -hmm. Michael, will you please blah, blah, blah. I also do understand that that is the way a certain sector of the entertainment population works i have a story about that i didn't experience this this was a friend who was a crew on a show and i'm not going to say who the person was because i don't want to slag her off but she definitely had a sign up that said do not look directly at ms do not speak to her before a performance or after a performance and i'm just thinking you know what lady at some point, somebody's got to say, hey, the toilet's broken. You're going to have to go down the hall. And it's not going to disrupt your performance. And I don't mean to denigrate actors. I don't mean to denigrate what they do. I don't mean to denigrate musicians. I do think that if there is a certain behavior that 
does not have to be. I definitely mean to denigrate those performers. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll tell you off uh, off the record who that was. It doesn't have to be. And everyone that is important to my development, that is exactly why I put them up there on my Mount Rushmore. Because they would never in a million years do something like that. They understand that that does not have to exist. Now, in Michael Jackson's defense, he does not behave that way during this. It does not seem like he demands that sort of kowtowing. Right. He at no point has raised his voice to anyone. He is very specific and definite, and he knows what he wants, but that's delivered with calmness. At first, I wondered how much of that was excised because of the legal wrangling involved with this. Absolutely good question. But I ultimately don't think a ton of it was. He does not strike me as the kind of artist who achieves results that way. And while, of course, there are lots and lots of stories surrounding his life, I didn't ever really hear of any that were, Michael Jackson is such a terrible person to work with, and oh, he's awful. You don't really hear things like that. He does seem very exacting, like you mentioned, but it doesn't seem to be of the cruel taskmaster variety. And that was probably the most interesting part of the whole thing to me, how he communicates with the band, with the dancers, this language that is sometimes completely mercurial and you just have to understand what he means. It's not articulated in the way necessarily you or I would, or that if I walked in, I would understand what they mean. It's born out of relationships that he's built over years, over decades sometimes, out of a shared sense of musical knowledge, but I think also you can see people really trying hard to grasp what it mm -hmm. is that he's talking about, and maybe if I just keep saying something, we'll get to it. Well, the band are utter pros. Definitely. And you realize, if you know me, that I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. Gotcha. I think it's really exhilarating to hear that music live, because a lot of it was created in machines. I've tried to play some of those drums before. That part of it was interesting to me, because there are very definitely parts of it that are triggers that are not being played live, that are pre-recorded. For example, how many times in ways you hear his own voice doubled over something. Right, right. So it's not necessarily lip-synced, which I was impressed to see. He does sing probably 90% of the show, but there is that definite falseness to those pre-prepared bits that turn me off as soon as I hear them. I know that the four backup singers that he has hired to do this job, none of them are making those sounds. Those voices are not coming out of their mouths. It's just a different style of show, like you mentioned. And so much of it has to do with audience expectation. What he wants to deliver to them and what they expect. I'm ringing my bell here, the I don't get it thing. I, the jukebox band thing has no appeal to me whatsoever. I would rather hear what you're doing now. I know that's not probably the majority opinion. Well, Earth Song, boring. <laughs> but anyway... Are we going to talk about that a little bit more later? I'm sure we'll get there, yes. Because I have something to say about how I'm amazed that's not your favorite. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? No, it's like a big anvil drops on the proceedings every time. But there's more I want to say about this before we get there. Okay. So that idea in the scene that we did at the top of the show, that Michael Jackson knows everything about all of his songs, 
every tempo, every note, every word, and how it is, quote-unquote, supposed to sound. Mm -hmm. That he wants it played the way the audience expects to hear it. So how many people are going to that show or shows like it for, hey, that hot new band member that he's got is really doing some great things with this song, or I want to hear him uh, bring a modern jazz tempo to this. I don't think a <laughs> not lot. Not a single one. Probably not many. Maybe I'm not giving people enough credit. No, but... I think you are exactly right. I think not one person that passes through those turnstiles wants to hear a radical rethinking of Smooth Criminal. Absolutely. So... He is creating his audience, and the audience is creating him at the same time. And I know that you hate that kind of thing, and yet again, we're back to that. It's the practical reality of this world that he is in. The half of the equation that I enjoy about that is that he very specifically knows what he wants, like you said. I love watching him try to achieve that. That feels like it might be even a little bit elusive for him, he is very specifically crafting an aesthetic and an entire world, whether or not it's a world I want to inhabit all the time, that's neither here nor there, but he has a very specific idea that he is constantly aiming at. And I think he is very definitely a true artist in that sense. He is building something that only he can do, that only he knows how it should sound, and constantly striving and doing his best to get there. I'm thinking about a moment in one of the special features, which I highly recommend people watching because I think it fills in really interesting detail. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of home viewing and what a difference that makes, but we'll save that for the end. Okay. At one point, one of the musicians is talking about how Michael Jackson comes from the time where you sang and you danced and you did it at the same time, the same way, perfectly, every time, no tricks. That definitely comes through. Like I said, I was surprised. I expected to see more pre-prepared tracks, and I expected to see a lot more lip-syncing because of how much physical activity occurs during his performance. I thought there's no way he's able to do both and not be winded, and for it not to really negatively affect the quality of the vocals. Because you would think maybe it's Al Jolson, and he's going to sort of step back, and then the dancers are going to come out, and he's going to wave his hands around a little bit, but it is not like that. I was thinking Peter Allen. <laughs> Peter Allen. Peter Allen gave 110% You're goddamn right he did. Do you want to hear my version of oh, Rio? Before you even gave me the song, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do Rio. Hold for applause. Hold it. Hold Simmer. It. Sizzle, okay. sizzle. What now? Talking again about the Jackson 5 and this idea of singing and dancing and doing it perfectly, he has a Jackson 5 piece in the show, done sort of as a medley. And it's an interesting moment because he's having trouble with his earpieces. Because things aren't dated, we don't really know where this happens in the rehearsal process, but it's giving him a lot of trouble. He can't hear properly. It's making him frustrated. The most frustrated I think we see throughout the entire mm -hmm. film. But he's not yelling again. And he's trying to emphasize, we do this all with love. But there's still that deference with which he is treated that's sort of like hand-holding, but not quite. It's more obnoxious and obsequious than that. But in this section, he's talking about his brothers. He specifically names his family. And it seems to give him a lot of joy, truly, which I was kind of surprised about. I think that has so much to do with that level of superstar 
just wanting normal aspects of a normal life, missing that so much. Like you mentioned, for him it has been since infancy. But as I was writing notes here, I put down Prince, Judy Garland, Elvis, these people who, once they achieved fame, could not have anything like a normal life. And for someone like Elvis, it came when he was in his late teens. It's so much more drastic for someone like Michael Jackson. Can you imagine, after the age of seven or eight, never being able to just to go to the grocery store? It is a world we cannot fathom, and it would make someone a little desperate, I think, to latch on to those things that felt like normal, everyday life. It made me think about what I mentioned at the top of the show, this trying to understand and hoping that this might be a vessel for that sort of illumination. Thinking again about watching those videos and seeing that young man and then this man and how he views that period and what it did to his psyche and trying to figure that stuff out and there's really no answer but still wanting to know. It seems a little contradictory, I think, saying that that's what you or the other fans want. This illumination of the real person. It makes sense wanting to get inside there, but everything about the public persona is supposed to be about superhuman escapism. Nothing to do with reality. For me, what I want is nothing but that human. I don't want the filters in between. The shows that I go to and went to as a kid when I was developing all these tastes, what I want is to go to Kelly's in Oklahoma City to see Jawbox. I shoot pool with them before the show. They stand on a stage after that that is about eight inches higher than the floor I'm standing on. And we blow the fuses and the walls start to sweat. And that's the thing that we made happen together. That is not this huge remove of there's a thing that I can never be, that I can never understand, and I am out here in my $140 seat with a safe distance between us appreciating a spectacle rather than a thing I feel like I am contributing to. So, which do you want more, the superhuman godlike Michael or the Michael that you just wish you could sit down and talk to? Me speaking only as me and also as a person who loves documentaries, I want to know the person. I want to know why and how. If you achieve that, does it diminish the enjoyment of the stage show? Does it make it different? Does it bring it down from Olympus a little bit? For me, it doesn't, and I don't actually need it to be at Olympus. Maybe that's the difference. I'm thinking about a moment I saw Kate Blanchett talking in an interview. The question asked to her was, do you watch the special features of DVDs? And I think she was talking specifically about Lord of the Rings. Mm. And she said, no, she wants the magic. I'm totally different. I want to know all of those other things, and then I'll go back and watch it again. And you know me, I've mentioned this a few times, I can still suspend disbelief. So I don't need this show to be Mount Olympus, and I still want to know and try to understand the person. I think the difference is, you asked me at some point after we watched this, I'm paraphrasing, basically what Michael Jackson was like in concert as a performer. Right. Did you ever get to see him? Unfortunately, no. And... I, of course, didn't do an exhaustive research study of this, but I looked in a couple of places, and the idea seems to be that he wasn't a storyteller specifically. 
I did wonder about that, how much he actually spoke to the audience. It didn't seem from these rehearsals like there was any room for that. I don't think that much of that happened. What every single person in all of these different forums said, it was the same kind of thing. Something incredibly mystical happened to me. He looked at me, something passed through my body. It was the greatest experience of Hmm. my life ever. So a case of the less you say, the less chance you take of dispelling that magic. I think he set it up to be mysterious. I think that's what people liked about him. Maybe the flip side of that is when you have this incredibly chaotic personal life that not saying anything gives people the opportunity to say, well, we just don't know. We'll just never know. We can't know the true person or just not believe any of it. That makes me think of a couple things. In addition to maintaining an element of mystery, the lack of any sort of interaction with the crowd definitely puts a damper on any moments of spontaneity that might take place. This is carefully executed to within an inch of its life. There is no way for spontaneity. I mean, that's how people get set on fire. (laughs) Literally in this case. Yes. The other thing that made me think of was the fact that when you see these interactions with the dancers, with the band, that the worst thing that could possibly happen in his entire world is to be slightly embarrassed by anything. It seems like that's what they are protecting him from. And so... The less he speaks, the better in that regard as well. Agreed. I also think that in watching him for decades, he did do other interviews. He has spoken publicly about things. And I think the bits that you see in this, he's not the most erudite person. You see it in the spoken word sections, again, in this sort of earth song Mm -hmm. section. It's fairly childlike and Mm -hmm. simplistic. Definitely. So... I'm sure he also didn't want to embarrass himself in public that way by trying to make some sort of a long speech that people would really start to get bored by or maybe giggle at. So he demonstrates some self-awareness by refraining from engaging in that sort of thing. Or maybe not. Maybe he wanted to do more and someone else said, Michael, maybe that's not such a great idea. But he would override him, I'm sure. No one in this group. That's true. No one in his entire life for the last 30 years, said no to him about anything. Okay. I want to bring a bulldozer on stage. You know what? That's a great idea. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's wait until the ending, too. But, okay, do you want to talk about the Earth Song section stuff sure. right now? Because sure. we're basically there. Let's talk about that, because I thought that would be your absolute favorite part. Based on what? Based upon the fact that you are the most Lisa Simpson of Lisa Simpsons. This was the moment that you were waiting for in the whole show, I thought. The only thing that could have excited you more is if he had an Amnesty International drive somewhere okay, in a set I break. was president of my local chapter. You don't need to bring that up. That's a true story. Um, maybe if there was breakdancing in it? I don't know. But, oh, it's terrible. It's so terrible. And I also think, as calculated as everything in this show is, as consummate a showman as he is... He knows my audience needs to go to the bathroom, go to the concession stand, and go buy merchandise. Uh, No, those are why those carry-around catheter bags were created. (laughs) Because nobody wants to miss a second of any of that stuff. Not even this song. Because I guarantee you, those aisles were full for that four minutes. (laughs) 
people made a mad dash. That, that's when I would have gone. Right. Yeah, for sure. It is put in there very specifically. I practically guarantee they did studies to determine how long the average person can hold it. And that is precisely where we put this in the set. Okay. Well, I'd still buy my You Go Girl and strap that on and then <laughs> patent pending. And on top of that, in addition to all that, does this strike you as a particularly green production? No. Yeah. So. Carbon footprint, really large. <laughs> pretty good sized. Well, it was 3D, I guess, you know, because, okay, I'm going to jump ahead to the end. What you don't see, what you will only learn from the special features, is the big ending finale was going to be a 3D airplane, MJ Air, that was going to come on the stage. And I saw the movie of what this was going to look like, and it's pretty astounding. That gives everyone the opportunity to get, quote-unquote, on the plane, out the building, in the cars, away, while us Joe Schmoes are, you know, picking up our purses from the floor to leave before we even know what's happened. So it wasn't real jet fuel. Does that make a difference? <laughs> now, were there particular production numbers, songs that you definitely wanted to hear before you saw Every this? Every single one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Did any of them stand out as being something special during the rehearsal process? Well, first and foremost, he didn't play my favorite Michael Jackson song ever. PYT? PYT. But he did play some others of my favorites and yours. Uh, just kidding. I'm thinking about... He didn't do Ben, so... No. Sad. But he did do Human Nature and I Just Can't Stop Loving You. I really liked his vocal work on those. It was really nice to have that sense of intimacy. And I know you mentioned when we were talking outside of this about Billie Jean. Mm -hmm. This was supposed to be the moment that was just Michael on stage with the audience. No backup dancers. This was just going to be him. His suit was going to light up, by the way. <laughs> I saw the pictures and the design. Very cool. It was a little disappointing to you, though. No moonwalk. No moonwalk. I know. Do you remember? Were you watching TV uh, during the, yes. Mo the Motown? Okay. <laughs> you kidding me? It still makes me... Oh. And, you know, actually, another reason why I chose this, I realized that I really think this is why I like music and dancing. Michael Jackson. You I saw Michael it. Jackson before I saw Fred Astaire. Okay. And to watch one guy do both of those things at the same time was pretty awesome. Yes, I remember watching that. And I think I started screaming. <laughs> It seems amazing now. I mean, I remember waiting for Thriller to come on and watching the pre-event for that, and I can still remember the name of the lady who was in the video, and on and on and on. And then also Man in the Mirror. I have a whole uh, choreography worked out to that with my friend Melissa. She doesn't know it. But if we were ever had the opportunity to sing together, uh, it was, it was going to be pretty awesome. That's the most troublesome song of the set for me. Yeah. Because where are you starting again, Michael? I'm sorry. Who are you taking to task first and foremost? One of the songs he didn't write. Yeah, listening to him sing that very definitely drives home the don't confuse the art with the artist point of this whole conversation. How so? You're looking at me like I'm a crazy person. Do you want to get into the allegations? Do you want to get into the background? I, no, I asked that. Well, we can. I asked that broadly. I mean, what do you what does it bring up for you? What it brings up for me 
is someone who is looking to, quote, change his ways, at the top of that list is touching boys on that? Come on. Yeah, I can't watch him sing about being a better person and maintaining an individual sense of responsibility and think about those things at the same time. It does not work. It's distracting. Did you feel like I did, which is that you do wish you had an opportunity to ask these questions to really know? Not really. I like my true crime a lot more homicidal than (laughs) that, rather than tabloid in nature. Okay. It doesn't interest me that much. Towards the end, we have a wrap-up of the rehearsal process. I call it the circle of thanks. And I'm thinking again about what I talked about earlier. He has the opportunity to make a brief speech here, which is, to me, quite awkward, but everybody's loving it, so who cares? It's all about... Everybody's doing a great job. Just keep giving me your all, including your patience, your understanding. There's nothing to be nervous about talking about this huge, grand project. And he specifically says this is about escapism Mm -hmm. for the audience. Ding. Yeah. Here's my bell. So I think he's answered who this is supposed to be for. The show, but I still wonder about the film. I think the same thing. Okay. It appeals to me because I'm a different breed sort of and still a fan but everyone else watching it has the chance to just live a moment that will never be and that's basically it we close on a frame of him and it doesn't address it in the film proper in the special features it does but in the film itself there's no postscript addressing the fact that shortly after they filmed this last segment he died and the show is over It doesn't touch on that. It attempts to leave you with the sense of uplift and what might have been, in addition to another clip of the environmental stuff. (laughs) As I mentioned, the special features fill in a lot more of this detail in the sense that I got was they finished rehearsals, they were set to leave the next day or shortly after to take the entire production to London. He died that night, June 25th. And one of the segments in particular It's called Memories of Michael, and it's everyone's opportunity to talk about their memories of him. I'm sure that was a devastating experience, to put your heart and soul into this amazing project and to work side by side with him for so long, and then lose this person who, as you mentioned, is like a god to them. The one moment I remembered the most, and which still affects me, is one of the musicians talking about a conversation that they had together where he was saying, we have to use our gifts to help others figure out what their gifts are. And I think that he really believed that. I don't know that that was ever the case. We have this idea of who was the man in the mirror, this question, I guess. But I really believe that he truly felt that he had to make a positive impact on the world. And as simplistic as, for example, the section of the Earth Song stuff is, how simplistic it is to say, I love trees, I do think he really loved trees. I think he loved people. He wanted to give of himself. He wanted to inspire others. I know he did. I don't know ultimately what that means for his legacy, a word that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. I don't know ultimately what all of this means. With all of this swirling around about not confusing the art with the artist, your fandom has not diminished. I focus only on the art. 
I never collected his posters. I didn't write fan letters. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see the shows. I didn't try to defend him to other people or to myself. I just made a conscious decision. I'm just going to listen to this music. What does that say about me? That's a tough one because I know that there are filmmakers that I enjoy their output that are unsavory characters to say the least. The line I draw, I guess, most often is, does it directly benefit them? If that's the case, then I don't contribute to that. If they somehow receive no residual from it and I can still enjoy the art on its own, then I am more inclined to pursue that. It's a tough decision to make, especially when you come into it as a child and it shapes your entire childhood, adolescence. It's been the soundtrack to practically your whole life and only once you are decades into it do you find out this one piece of information that colors everything. For some people that's impossible to let go. I did essentially stop listening after Thriller. Did you only listen to Weird Al parodies after that? Yes, actually, probably. There's so many degrees to all of this. Just even earlier today, I was listening to a podcast talking about impeachment. Mm -hmm. And one of the just sort of throwaway bits of trivia was John Wayne defending Richard Nixon and offering (laughs) to get rid of the Nixon tapes for him. I mean... That's pretty terrible. Do we want to start comparing these things? Well, uh, how terrible is it compared to this other horribly terrible thing? How many people is it going to affect? I don't know. I know I don't want to be a part of child molestation. I don't want to be a part of abuse. I also don't want to be a part of uh, the blacklist. Mm -hmm. Or falsely accusing someone of something they did not do. Yes. So to come back full circle... I wanted to know certain things and I didn't get them from the film Mm -hmm. and I will never get them. Sure. And yet I truly love and have moved by this film because of the artist in it and the art. In this instance, you mentioned special features an awful lot. And it's a subject we haven't talked about a whole lot. Home viewing versus viewing in the theater and being collectors like we are and having such a large library how much home viewing is an essential part of what we do and enjoying those things all that supplemental material that offers context and background do you think the film stands up well enough on its own without having those things with it i guess it depends on what kind of viewer you are yes clearly for the vast number of tickets sold it stood up for some people they would never care or never know what was on the DVD extras. It's an essential part for me because of process, like I mentioned, 85,000 times, sorry, to keep beating a dead horse. I want to see the costuming process. I want to know how they chose the dancers, and I want to look at the choreography rehearsals. And I want to hear from people's mouths without him there what he truly meant to him. What was it like to have worked with him? I wanted two things a little more that I didn't get necessarily out of the special features. More Tito. Yeah. Because there's one great shot of him on the victory tour, shredding. And more about the makeup process for the new segment of the Thriller video that they shot in the 3D. That makeup was fantastic. It was really great. And I said I stopped listening after Thriller. I had the Victory Tour record. So, sorry. 
I think really a lot of this was kind of an exercise in melodrama probably for me. It mm-hmm. was a, it was an opportunity to wallow and cry when someone talks about gifts, God-given gifts, and I just start crying even though I don't really believe much of that. It's it's guileless. Yeah, it's interesting though now that you bring it up. I am curious about how necessary it was for the mourning process for so many people, for literally millions of people around the world that weren't going to get anything else from the man. That sense of closure that they got from it, did you feel that when you saw it? Did you see it in the theater? No, I didn't. So you had to wait a little while. But even so, once you finally did, is that what it felt like? I think I'm going to cheat again and say yes and no. Okay. It was a bit of a grieving process for me, which took me by surprise. It was a chance to celebrate the art and the artist because I hadn't for a very long time, at least the artist part, because mm-hmm. I'd separated myself so much from him. And a chance to experience it with other people and talk to other people who were also so moved by the music since childhood. I'm glad that I didn't see it in the theater because I watched the special features immediately following and it just became this sort of event, this little mini event in my house. So in this case, home viewing was the superior experience. For me, okay. yes. Well, all things being equal, it didn't affect me the same way it affected you, obviously. Because I'm coming into it as a bit of an outsider. I wasn't a lifelong fan. What are you left with now that we've had the discussion? What do you take away from all this? Did we cover everything about why you wanted to talk about it? I think so, without just continuing to try to elaborate more and more and more. I will say that there's one thing I was left with that I do feel was important to me specifically and illuminating to me. This was, again, in the special features. When Michael Jackson was saying, I expect you to be at your best at all times. I challenge myself the same way. That was important for me. I love these instances of when you can take a lesson from something that you were not expecting to receive. There are a ton of examples in both my viewing and in other conversations I've had with other filmgoers that these things crop up in the least likely places. One of the most important lessons I ever learned from National Lampoon's Vacation, for instance. You know, it could come from anywhere. So I love it when this sort of thing crops up. What is it that makes you come back around to that at the end? I think it's that question about the art and the artist again. Okay. It's an opportunity for me to celebrate a portion of the artist worth celebrating. It's a sentiment I can get behind. I truly believe that that is the way that he lived. And I think it was expressed in his art. Does it make everything perfect? No, but it gives me more insight. And to hear him say it and to watch him live it, I think was really interesting for me as a fan. And I think most interestingly, it doesn't resolve the -hmm. conflict of the art versus the artist. I think it makes it more complicated. I think what you're trying to say is, let me know if I'm reading this right, is mama say, mama sa, mama kusa. (laughs) Right? Yes. Thank you. How about your recommendation this time? Let me start with a bit of trivia. Okay. Did you know... Prince, Madonna, and Michael Jackson were all born in 1958. I did not know that. Three people, very influential to me. One we've already talked about. We mentioned Madonna in our Desperately Seeking Susan episode. 
You mention Prince every night in your dreams. I do. <laughs> so, I decided to choose Purple Rain okay. from 1984. Not just for this nice confluence of the birth dates, but because I think Prince is the exact opposite of Michael Jackson in that, through this film and his music and every single thing he ever did ever, he constantly reveals himself to the extent that he could mm -hmm. or even understood every song, every gesture, every choice, every move. And Purple Rain is the encapsulation of that. I mentioned it's from 1984, directed by Albert Magnoli, with Prince, Apollonia, and Morris Day, your favorite and mine, <laughs> and Jerome. It's about the kid, a young musician tormented by an abusive situation at home, who is contending with a rival singer, a burgeoning romance, his own dissatisfied band, as his star begins to rise. I was not allowed to see Purple Rain when it came out. Oh, I guess there is that age difference thing again. Because I went to the theater to see it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, opening weekend, and the next Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the weekend after that. I saw that movie six times in the first two weeks because just the opening sequence of Let's Go Crazy blew my goddamn mind. Yep. Still does. Yes, absolutely. I was too young. It was going to be too sexy for me to go see. It's pretty sexy. It is pretty sexy in a super weird way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, super weird. It was the stuff of my dreams until I was able to see it. Prince was the stuff of my dreams. Prince was the first time I realized boys are pretty cool. <laughs> and, and as opposed to the ones that were around me right. on a daily basis. Well, you didn't have that anywhere in your social circle uh, no princes in my life gave me special feelings deep inside <laughs> okay. so if you want an insight into an artist a very 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 singular one i think that this is a great way to go of course only rivaled by under the cherry moon which is even <laughs> more illuminating into prince's character how about you my recommendation is also a documentary about the music scene that meant the absolute most to me. My recommendation is Salad Days from 2014, directed by Scott Crawford. It's about a decade of punk in Washington, D.C., documenting the years from 1980 to 1990, and it covers the social, cultural, and political impact of the hardcore and post-hardcore scene in Washington, D.C. There are great interviews with Ian MacKay, Henry Rollins, Jay Robbins, members of Untouchables, Youth Brigade, Gray Matter, Minor Threat, Government Issue, Fugazi, Jawbox, on and on and on and on. No scene was more crucial to me, and no scene in general was more vital and self-sufficient than the DC scene was. You dealt with DC, you did so on their terms. Discord Records, which was the label that Ian MacKay started to document the whole thing and preserve it for posterity, is basically a response to the odious music industry that we see in full flower in This Is It. The record industry as most people know it, I would say. And after all this time, they're still at it. Dag Nasty is playing three days from now, and the makeup is in Barcelona in June if you want to go. That scene appealed to me so much because, like I mentioned, it's the antithesis of a lot of the things that we saw in this. It is about real, accessible, approachable human beings putting their shoulder to the wheel and doing great work making music that I will never forget, and fostering a true sense of community rather than isolation. 
And speaking as a person who was largely unfamiliar with a lot of this music, it's a great film to watch. It's really enjoyable. I really liked those stories. I especially like the go-go sound. That was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, without DC, there is no debut. I did that in uh, junior high dance. So, super weird again. Purple Rain and Salad Days. And that brings us to the end of episode 46. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and now YouTube as we slowly upload our back episodes there. You can just search for our name in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since the last episode. Craig Eastman, Scott Morris, and Drew Tavendale over at the excellent podcast Fuds on Film. Drew in particular had a lot to say about our Third Man episode, one of his favorite films of all time, and we really appreciate all that feedback. Eric Parkinson over at the podcast This Must Be The Place. Travis Trudell sent us a really nice email in response to our question about how to get younger viewers interested in classic film and told us a lot about his family movie time and how he is encouraging his youngsters to pursue these things and it was really great that he shared that with us we appreciate that travis the tribeca short list mike sharp jane sankner keith rich jeff duncanson tim lego and last but not least i wanted to say a special thanks to tyler allen for leaving us a really nice review this past week tyler does a great podcast called the minds of madness which is something near and dear to my heart, like we mentioned this time and last time, the true crime thing. He profiles cases that you don't often hear a lot about, so it's not your usual true crime 101. It's a really interesting show. If you like true crime, you should check it out. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review on any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 